Well, good morning, everyone. How are we doing today? I don't know if you uh, almost caught it like I did, but Brian almost dismissed us. As he was saying, he's like, and you, and I'm like, oh no, don't leave everyone, stay. So, um, I appreciated our worship this morning. Um, it's always good to just have that opportunity to push everything else aside and focus our hearts on the Lord. Um, it's good to sing songs to him. You know, it, it's hard to sing songs, um, in a grumpy way, right? Music has a way of just lifting our affections up. So, uh, it's just a great opportunity for us. And I, I believe that's why God created music. And that's, I, I believe that's why um, singing to him is such a central part of our worship. And so I, I pray you've been blessed uh, through the gifts of our uh, worship team leading us before the throne. The story began one summer's day towards the end of the 19th century when an English city boy <clears throat> was on a visit to a rural Scotland uh, town. Now that afternoon, this boy went swimming in a small countryside lake and he was swimming for quite a while. And after a while, he developed a cramp in his leg and he was not able to continue swimming. In the great pain that he was feeling, he soon cried out at the top of his voice for some help. And there was a farm boy that was nearby this lake that had heard the cries of, of this other boy um, crying out as he was swimming. And so this farm boy ran as fast as he could into the lake. He jumped in, he grabbed this boy, and he drug him to the shoreline. Several years later, the two boys met again. The city boy, still filled with gratitude that the other boy had saved his life, was thrilled to see this farm boy again and asked him what career uh, he was thinking about pursuing as he was getting older. And the farm boy said he had chosen a career in medicine. Since the city boy's parents were quite wealthy and they were greatly indebted to this boy for saving their son's life, this boy's parents promised to pay his tuition for his medical education. They followed through on their promise, and the young man went on to have a brilliant career in scientific investigation. In 1928, that farm boy, then both a physician and a bacteriologist, discovered the famous wonder drug penicillin. In 1945, he shared the Nobel Prize with two other scientists for that discovery and the development of that antibiotic. That Scottish farm boy turned scientific researcher who died in 1955 was Alexander Fleming. The rescued city boy also gained great renown. During World War II, he contracted a life-threatening case of pneumonia. He recovered at a hospital after receiving penicillin, which meant that indirectly, the farm boy saved his life two times. The city boy's name was none other than Winston Churchill, the famous wartime British prime minister and world statesman. Interestingly, just like Fleming, Churchill won also a Nobel Prize, but in his, in his instance, he won it in 1953 in literature for his writings during the history of World War II. 
It's a, one, it's a wonderful thing to save a life. And even more wonderful to save someone's life twice. But the hardworking, selfless contributions of Alexander Fleming are nothing compared to the greatness of God saving people eternally. That great salvation is the heart of the message that we're going to unpack here in 1 Peter. Peter celebrates salvation's greatness by reminding his readers that no matter how difficult the circumstances or how severe the persecution, they can confidently hold onto the hope of their salvation. And it's so important for Peter to move his readers to this thought. He does so as another example of the grace of God in their lives. And he does so by reminding us of the example of Jesus Christ. Remember, these are scattered aliens that have been under great persecution. We talked about this last week, that they were under severe trials, fiery ordeals, that the intensity of life was heating up around them. Why? Because they believed in Jesus. And and Peter is reminding them to press on in their trials and not to lose heart because there is a greater glory coming because they have an inheritance that has been secured for them by the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, keep your eyes fixed ahead. And now what Peter does in this passage as a way of encouragement is to say, consider him who did the same thing. Consider Jesus Christ. Don't think for a second that God is asking you to do something that he wasn't willing to do first. Isn't that great that he models the path that we are to follow? He calls us to do something that in and of ourselves is an incredibly difficult thing to press on in the midst of the the fieriest trials that we can go through. With our hearts fixed on heaven. With our hope laid up in heaven. And he says, Jesus did the same thing. Follow him. Follow his footsteps. Be like Jesus. There's also this thought too in our passage and It's not just that passing glance, but one that would cause us to pause, dwell and rejoice in the in the realization of the amazing gift of our salvation. Now, we talk about this a lot here at church, especially because the text of Scripture is so full of this reminder. But our salvation wasn't an accident. It wasn't by happenstance. It wasn't just, oh, well, I think we'll do this now. But there has been a long drawn out plan of God from the very beginning to redeem his creation. This passage calls us to glory in the gift of the one who secured our salvation as we consider the holy purpose for which Jesus came. That we would glory, that we would sing praises, that we would rejoice That our hearts would be lifted higher than the circumstances of life. 
to the place where God is and just rest in the goodness of him. Maybe I should have preached first and then we should have finished by singing all the songs that we just sang. But maybe we can take a message like this and remind ourselves that there are great opportunities for us to rejoice greatly, even in life's greatest fiery ordeals. Because we rejoice in the one who paid the price, who took our cost to forgive us. So this morning, let's come with expectation. Let's come with eagerness. And let's come with a learning ear as we consider our so great salvation. Turn with me to 1 Peter 1. And I'll be reading verses 10 through 12. This is what the Apostle Peter writes. And more importantly, this is the Word of God. As to this salvation... The prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you, and these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long. To look. Now, Peter begins this this thought about the greatness of our salvation by by stating as to this salvation. It was this salvation that Peter had just finished explaining in the preceding verses, the total salvation that leads to our ultimate glorification as we are brought home to heaven, as we receive the inheritance that is imperishable, the inheritance that that nothing will destroy, the inheritance that 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 portion that is set aside for each child of God that they will receive fully because of their faith in Jesus Christ. The salvation that is the reward for the believer that is inaugurated by faith in God's Son. Now, I don't know if you've ever received an inheritance before. Maybe some of you have, as you've had loved ones that have passed on, and maybe they set aside a, a portion of, of, of what was theirs for you. And, and maybe it was great, or, or maybe it was small, but there was some amount. Here's what I'm going to say to you. What you will receive because of Jesus Christ will completely blow your mind. It is something far greater than any kind of tangible worth. And I I can't quite wrap my head around the fact that each believer receives an inheritance of great worth. Not saying that I am better off or worse off than another believer, but that God has so much that he can give it all so graciously, so lavishly, so amazingly. Although we suffer various trials here, salvation's reward is guaranteed and it cannot be taken away. Peter writes this salvation. Now, what's interesting as we look at the text this morning is the various groups of creation that are seeking out the mystery of salvation from their vantage point. And they could not quite understand the full divine plan as they considered that salvation. Peter mentions two main groups of God's creation, the Old Testament saints 
and the angels. And as they are front row audience spectators of the unraveling mystery of God, they're just gazing in at this amazing gift that Jesus provided. And they didn't quite understand it as they were writing about it. But they are searching longly. They are um, focused on this amazing, wonderful gift that God has provided us. It's reminded in verse 10 when Peter writes, It began with the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. The prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. And they made careful searches and inquiries. Now, let's just take a step back for a second. Let's appreciate what Peter is saying. That the prophets of the Old Testament, people like Moses and Samuel and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel, the other inspired prophets of Scripture, as they wrote the Old Testament, Some 400 years before Christ came. That's when the last book of the Old Testament was written. 400 years. But in reality, a lot of the books of the Old Testament were written a lot earlier. Like 1,300 years to about 700 years before Christ came. And that as each one wrote the text of Scripture, they were writing about something that they could not quite understand. They didn't understand the full reality of Messiah. What he was going to do. What he would accomplish. Verse 11 confirms that they were seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. So the prophets who told about a Savior that they had not seen, like Moses when he wrote Genesis 3. Moses was the writer of the book of Genesis. He wrote the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Right, that's there in, for us in verse 11. These prophets wrote in the Spirit of Christ. That's another reference to the Holy Spirit. As the Holy Spirit was inspiring them to write the things that God wanted them to write for us. This is what he said in Genesis 3.15. I guess I don't have it. Oh, I do. That in the garden... In the very beginning, after the fall, when the serpent had deceived Adam and Eve, the judgment for the serpent, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. So here's the thing, right? What Moses is writing here is what theologians call the proto-evangelum. The first gospel in the scriptures, the first telling of the promise of the Messiah, the Savior. And you might be reading, I don't quite see that. Well, it's in there in the text because the seed of the woman would eventually produce the Christ. And this 
seed, this son, would bruise the head, a lethal blow on the serpent. And the serpent will only bruise his heel. Now listen, if you've ever hurt your heel before, I know, it hurts. But it's far different than a head injury. And so Moses is writing about something that he didn't understand the full reality of. And yet, in the garden, God was promising a Messiah, a Savior. For the first time, while the fall was taking place, while sin had just entered the world, God is saying, I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to come. Now, these prophets were writing about the Christ as inspired by the Holy Spirit. Now, Peter wrote on the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture in the second letter that he wrote. In 2 Peter verses 1, 20 through 21, we read, But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And so when, when Peter writes that portion of the letter, what he's reminding his readers, what he's telling us today, and this is what Paul wrote in, in Timothy, that all Scripture is God-breathed. Like, there, there is this testimony in Scripture that the writers of Scripture are not writing their own words. They're writing God's Word to us. God is speaking through them. God inspired them to say what they wrote. And so as these prophets are prophesying of the grace that would come, this is God echoing His promises to us. The writers of the Old Testament had written much about the predicted sufferings and glories to follow. There are at least 350 and as much as 450 total prophecies of Jesus in the Old Testament. Much had been written, much had been promised about, about the Savior and what He would do. Now, there are people that are a lot smarter about this than I am that did the math. Comparatively speaking, you have a 1 in 700,000 chance of being struck by lightning in a year. You have a 1 in 2 million chance of being killed by a bolt of lightning. You have a 1 in 10 million chance of becoming president. And, and just so you know, you have a year to figure that out. You have a 1 in 180 trillion chance of your house being hit by a meteorite landing. Now, this is what the mathematicians have done considering the Old Testament prophecies. If Jesus only filled eight of the at least 350 prophecies that were in the Old Testament, right, the odds of one person fulfilling just eight of those prophecies given, it's a one in 10 with 28 zeros after it. I don't even know how to say that number. Right? That's the chance of one man fulfilling eight of those prophecies. 
But he didn't just fulfill eight. He fulfilled at least 350. And as the prophets are prophesying about the sufferings and the glories that are to come, they're making careful searches and inquiries because what they're writing about is exciting them. They're overwhelmed by this thought that God would do such a great work. Now, these phrases, careful searches and inquiries, implies diligent searching and a thoroughness like, do you ever lose your keys before? Friday night, we went down to Baltimore to visit family. Um, my nephews were celebrating their birthday. And as we were getting ready to leave, uh, we have a dog harness for our dog that we use every night as she goes and hunts rabbits. And we have also just a collar with a leash. I was looking for the collar and leash. I looked everywhere. I made careful searches and inquiries. I still haven't found it. These prophets, as they are making careful searches and inquiries, weren't just pondering in their minds, like as philosophers thinking, hmm, I wonder who this seed of the woman would be. And they're conjuring up their own thoughts. No, as they came to understand the gravity of the Messiah to come, they searched hard in the scriptures that they were writing. And they searched hard in the scriptures that the other prophets were writing. They're looking deeply into the revealed, inspired word of God as to the salvation and grace that would come. And it's obvious that the prophetic writers of the Old Testament did not fully understand the significance of what they were writing. They did not know the when and the how of Jesus's life and ministry, but they did not doubt the promises of God. That's what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 11, that all of the people listed in the hall of faith died believing in the hope that was to come. Now, Daniel, one of the prophets, clues us into the difficult task that they had about writing about the things that they wrote about. I mean, when a prophet had a message, it wasn't just this easy thing that came upon them and they were like, okay, well, I'm just going to write about this thing in the future. And oh, great, wonderful, praise God, thank you. No, Daniel, it clues us into what's going on in his heart. In the inspired text. We read passages like Daniel 7.15. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. We read later in Daniel 8.27, Then I, Daniel, was exhausted and sick for days. Then I got up again and carried on the king's business, but I was astounded at the vision and there was none to explain it. And then in Daniel 10, we read, When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face towards the ground and became speechless. And behold, one who resembled a human being was touching my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke and said to him who was standing before me, O oh my Lord, as a result of the vision, anguish has come upon me and I have retained no strength. For how can such a servant of my Lord talk with such as my Lord? As for me, there remains just now no strength in me, nor has any breath been left in me. The prophets writing about things that were in the future would often be at the end of themselves, considering the depth of the things that they were writing. These were not easy things that they were considering. 
And what's interesting to me about what Peter says as they wrote concerning the Messiah is that they had written about his sufferings and the glories to follow. They wrote about his sufferings. Because when the Jews were alive during the days of Jesus, they were not considering that Messiah would suffer. They were looking for a king to rescue them. But these prophets prophesied about the sufferings and glories to follow. Here's what we need to see, and we saw this last week, but just so that we're reminded as we follow the example of our Savior who redeemed us by coming to the cross to die in our place, that suffering precedes glory. Suffering precedes glory. We are promised to suffer before we receive the full glory. And it was the same for Jesus. Isaiah 53 predicts the suffering of the servant. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn to Isaiah 53. Isaiah is one of these prophets that prophesied about the sufferings and the glories to follow. And in Isaiah 53, we read these all too familiar verses. Beginning in verse 2. And this is speaking of Jesus. For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. And all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us, of us all, to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom this stroke was due, his grave was assigned with wicked men. Yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor there was any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. 
Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Can you see, even in that passage alone, just a portion of the prophetic promises of what Jesus would fulfill? Some of the at least 350 promises. And can you see also that in the great suffering that this promised one, this tender shoot, would go through, that there was something far greater for him to receive? That his suffering preceded the glory to follow. That the Lord was pleased to crush him. And yet, he would have a portion with the great. And he would have an inheritance to give. That the Christ would suffer. And that the Christ would be glorified. Isaiah chapter 9 helps us to understand some of the glory. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Daniel chapter 7 clues us in to some of the some more of the glory that was to come. Daniel writes, I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion, glory and a kingdom that all the people's nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed, that there was suffering and that there is glory to follow. And that the prophets are, are leaning over the edge, watching this history unfold. Searching, inquiring, wondering, trying to, to understand how will it happen. But what's interesting to me is not just in the writing itself, not just in what the prophets were doing, not just about those things in and of itself, but that Jesus, who has eternally existed, knew from the beginning the path that he was set upon. That the, the prophets prophesying were writing about what he already knew. That he would one day leave heaven to live with sinners. That he would be rejected and falsely accused. He would be beaten and mocked. He would die a cruel death on a cross while the closest to him would abandon him. While dying on that cross, Jesus cried out as he was bearing the totality of humanity's sins. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this Son of God, who always had ceaseless, endless fellowship with the Father, in that moment understood that based on the wrath of God directed upon him, his fellowship was hampered, hindered. That for that moment on the cross, Jesus, 
had interrupted fellowship with God, the Father. Why? Because he was carrying our sins. He took our place. And the sufferings of Christ was for us. But Jesus saw the glories to follow. To pay for sin and to to defeat death. To crush the head of the serpent. To redeem those who were enslaved to sin. And bring those who would receive him by faith into a personal relationship with him. And with his father in heaven. And that he would give his spirit to live inside of us. To help us live this life today. As we wait for our future glorification. It's important that Peter connects this thought here. He had just said that we will be tested by fire through various trials. That the way to glory is through suffering. That suffering precedes glory for the believer. And it was that way for the king of the universe. That was his path. Those were his steps. Jesus is our example. He is the supreme example of suffering on the way to glory. Church, may we keep our eyes on this great Savior as we face suffering in this world, knowing that we are just pilgrims on a path to a future glory. And then Peter writes in verse 12, He says, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you and these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Not only were the prophets writing, not not only were they looking, not only were they searching, not only were they giving inquiries, not only were they at the edge of their seat, wanting to see how it was going to be fulfilled. But they just weren't serving themselves. And they weren't just serving their contemporaries. They weren't just writing to the people that were around when they were alive. Peter says that every prophet of the Old Testament was used by God to write about Christ for us. Very specifically, Peter's saying, for the us that are the the scattered aliens in the regions of Asia Minor that he referenced in verse 1. But for us in the church age, we read the Old Testament with an understanding that that was written for us so that we might come to know who Jesus is. And that we would have the true fulfillment of what he accomplished Now, for us, we have the beauty of hindsight to read the Old Testament through the lens of the cross. And we read the 350 up to 450 prophecies and think, all right, that's obvious. We know exactly what they were saying. But for the Old Testament Jew, they did not. They're looking ahead. And yet we, knowing who the Christ is when he came and what he did, should be a people who continually read the Old Testament. We need to be a people that continually read all of Scripture 
Even the things that we read in the Old Testament where we think, yeah, that doesn't apply to me because I'm not under the law, but we need to read it anyways because we need to understand that God is still holy and that Christ has met the demands of the law and that we can enjoy Him in friendship and peace. And we can read those promises and say, how great is my Savior? And so we shouldn't be a people that just read the New Testament or the the fun stories of the Old Testament. We should be a people that are drilling down into the depths of the mysteries of the wonderful gift of the Old Testament about the Savior that that was to come. These prophets prophesied about our salvation. The determined plan of God in our salvation That it's not by chance or accident. That we would read the Old Testament with the perspective of a Savior who was promised and fulfilled and who set out to accomplish what He needed to do. The Old Testament also reminds us of the future glories to come. We learn so much about the Messiah's future kingdom in the Old Testament. We learn so much about what Jesus is setting up as he is restoring his people Israel, and as he is joining us into his kingdom that will truly be a time of amazing, awesome, wonderful living. These things, Peter writes, have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Here we see that the the preachers and teachers of God's word that were sent to these aliens to share the gospel with them were illuminated by the Holy Spirit so that they could hear the gospel and respond by faith. Now, to illuminate means to shine a light. That the Holy Spirit prepares our hearts to hear and receive the Word of God. That as Paul said in 2 Corinthians, the unspiritual man cannot appraise the spiritual things of God. And so we need God's Spirit to shine the light on our hearts and minds to hear and understand the depths of the truths of God's Word. This holy book is a holy undertaking. One that needs the Holy Spirit to activate using His illuminating grace. And the other thing that Peter writes, not just about the prophets, but he writes in 1 Peter 1.12, not only are the prophets leaning in, but these are things into which angels long to look. That's a strange thought for me. Who are the angels? Well, they're a created being. But they live primarily in heaven. And they do God's bidding. They see the presence and the holiness of God. They see heaven. 
And there's angels in heaven watching the unfolding mystery of salvation. And they are looking long into it. Now this word long in the Greek is in the aorist tense. And you think, great, thanks. But what that means is it's active. It's all the time. The angels are always longing in their look into the gift of salvation. The angels have a holy curiosity as to the plan of salvation. Listen, they're created beings. But what is different about an angel and us is that their will is sealed. They always do the bidding of God. When God says, angel number 5,321, I want you to go over there. The angel doesn't say, you know, my calendar's full today. I got things on the schedule. I'll get back to you. No, the angel does it. That's what angels do. We do not have a sealed will. We have a free will. And I think part of the amazing longing gaze that angels have as they look into the mystery of salvation is that these angels are also looking at God's creation, us, longing, leaning, watching in wonder that people who have a free will would choose to follow God. And that God would be faithful to rescue them and to reach them and to save them. The angels watch and delight in the glories of Christ's kingdom as they find ever fuller realization in the lives of individual creation or Christians throughout church history. The angels rejoice, right? When a sinner comes home, heaven throws a party. They cannot understand it, but they rejoice when someone finds faith in the Messiah. So great a salvation? That's a question. So great a salvation? You bet it is. It's amazing. What a wonderful gift we have in Jesus. May we never lose the wonder in what Jesus has done for us. As you read the scriptures, don't ever forget why all of those promises were given. So that you would be forgiven and reconciled to God as his child, to live forever with him in his kingdom. Let's pray.